This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Well, good hot and humid Friday afternoon. I hope that everybody has found a nice cool spot to uh, hang out this afternoon, whether you're in air conditioning, by a pool, maybe by a lake, or with a nice cold drink in hand. Welcome to our summer edition of your Q&A with DHA. Today, we're gonna to do our best to answer some of the hot questions that we received, a hot topic, hot questions, hot afternoon. They all seem to go hand in hand. These are questions we've received from all of you who have submitted your questions in advance. We thank you for that. We received so many questions, it's unfortunately we're not able to answer all of your questions. We even received some requests after the deadline ended. So I'm sorry we were, aren't able to get to everybody's questions, but we. We have 45 minutes to an hour today, so we're going to try and get as many questions in as we possibly can. We want to respect everybody's very tight schedules these days, so we will finish by one o'clock. Uh, we'll encourage all of our lawyers to keep within their time frame and do our best, like I said, to be done uh, between 45 minutes and an hour. We unfortunately can't take questions live during our session because again, we do this to ensure that we respect the time frame of 45 minutes to an hour, but do stay tuned for our next Q&A coming up sometime in the fall. And we'll give you an update at the end of our session today on our next condo crunch. So without further ado, to just jump right into our substance, I'm going to invite Jim Davidson to go ahead and turn his camera on and to unmute himself. Jim is going to give us some fantastic information in answer to some questions about reserve funds, reserve fund studies, reserve fund accounts. Again, with all the construction going on this summer, some really hot topics. Jim, I turn it over to you. Well, thanks very much, Nance. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks so much to you for joining us. Uh, as Nancy was saying, one of our questioners asked fairly general questions about the reserve fund. So for instance, when is it proper to use the reserve fund as opposed to the operating fund? What do you do if you don't agree with the draft reserve fund study from the reserve fund analyst? And another question, uh, in terms of investments, is it okay to accept an investment that is offered by one of the big six banks and therefore protected by the bank, but not insured by CDIC or by the province of Ontario. So I'm gonna start off with some general comments about reserve funds, and then I hope to answer the questions. So first of my general comments, the reserve fund is of course for major repairs and replacements of the common elements and assets. Major repairs and replacements are not defined in the act or in the regulations. There is one small clue in section 27 of regulation 4801. That section says that the items to be included in the reserve fund study, they're called the component inventory, are items costing more than $500 to replace. But I don't think that's a full answer because many annual or operating repairs and replacements cost more than $500. To me, the key concept is as follows. Condominiums are supposed to be planning or budgeting for constant annual condo fees, increasing only by inflation. Otherwise, if there is reason to believe that the fees may increase beyond inflation, this has to be disclosed in the status certificates. And of course, the goal is to always try to stay on track so that the status certificates can stay clear if possible. So again, the goal when possible is to come up with a monthly condo fee that can stay constant 
increasing only by inflation so that your status certificates can stay clear. Now to do that, I think that the budgeting strategies are as follows. The operating budget should cover any expenses that repeat annually that you have every year. The reserve fund should cover any projects that don't repeat annually. And of course, the whole idea behind the reserve fund study and plan is to come up with an annual contribution to the reserve fund that stays constant, increasing only by in inflation from year to year and inflationary increases just keeping it constant. So this allows the status certificate to stay clear. So in summary, I think that a reserve fund project is something that does not repeat each year. In the operating budget, you can of course have a grab bag of certain expenses that don't each repeat annually, provided the whole bag essentially repeats annually like general maintenance. And I think maybe items costing under $500 can perhaps be included in that sort of grab bag. But again, in general terms, I believe that a major repair or replacement is something that comes along less often than annually. And that means that you deal with it in the reserve fund. I should also add the following. There are some projects that involve a change or an upgrade. Strictly speaking, the reserve fund is not available for optional changes or upgrades. However, a change or upgrade that is necessary in order to keep up with evolving construction standards or is otherwise necessary in order to bring about a proper repair is in my view, a repair or replacement and the reserve fund can be used for that. In some cases, you may have a mix between the two, part repair or replacement and part optional change or upgrade. In those cases, you can still use the reserve fund for the repair or replacement portion of the cost. You just can't use the reserve fund for any extra cost relating to the optional change or upgrade. I should add that there are proposed amendments to the act that will allow certain upgrades, particularly green energy projects to be paid from the reserve fund, but those provisions are not yet in force. One further note, if a proposed project will involve an optional change or upgrade, this may also require the involvement of owners under section 97 of the condominium act. So that's also something else to watch for when dealing with a change or upgrade. Now, in terms of the reserve fund study, in strict technical terms, you are not obligated to follow the recommendations, the draft study from a reserve fund analyst. And in the notice of future funding, you can say how your plan, your final plan differs from the study. However, I much prefer that you always follow the experts recommendations, the experts advice, the experts draft study. Otherwise, you run the risk of being found negligent for failing to follow expert advice. And then you also would, would not have the liability protection afforded by Section 37 sub 3 of the Condominium Act, which applies when board members follow expert advice. So if you would disagree with the draft reserve fund study, I recommend that you meet with the expert, bang heads, try to persuade the expert to make revisions, but at the end of the day, adopt the expert's study. Another option, one other option is to entirely reject the draft study and hire an alternative reserve fund analyst. But of course that involves added time and expense and it might require that you consider whether or not the new analyst uh, 
has missed anything that was noticed by the first analyst when you get the two different studies. So there's an added potential obligation to compare the two studies before you just adopt the latest study. But again, this strategy, going with another analyst, picking a, a new later study is normally a legally acceptable alternative subject to those concerns that I expressed. In terms of investments, in our view, Section 115 of the Condominium Act requires that all condominium investments be either government issued or government guaranteed or government insured. This will also be made even more clear by pending amendments to section 115. So in our view, an investment, even from one of the main banks that does not meet these requirements is likely not permitted. So there you go, Nats, back to you. Thank you so much, Jim. That was just terrific. As we were saying, there's so many projects going on right now and so many questions about what can and cannot be put through the reserve and what do we need to worry about for financing. So those are just terrific. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. So that's going to take us right on to our next speaker today. Jessica, I'm going to invite you there. She is already ready to go. Jessica is going to talk to us about a few different topics and I'll let you uh, stay, uh, stay tuned and keep you on your toes. But Jess, if you want to start us off with liens, I believe. Great. Thanks so much, Nancy. Good afternoon. I have a few questions to discuss today dealing with three separate but interesting topics. First, I'll briefly discuss collection of arrears for a co-tenancy. Second, we'll discuss amalgamation of condominium corporations. And third, we'll discuss modifications made by the corporation to exclusive use common elements. Our first question has to do with collection of arrears for a co-tenancy. Uh, the options of, for collection are similar but not identical to those of a condominium corporation. Under the Condominium Act, a condominium corporation can register a condominium lien where an owner defaults on their common expenses. Co-tenancies are not condominiums, and therefore they're not governed by the Condominium Act. Instead, each co-tenancy will have a governing document, which is often called a common property or co-tenancy agreement, and this document is registered on title to each property in the community. This agreement is going to uh, set out the details of the co-tenancy, uh, including things like what's uh, included in the shared costs, details about payment of the common fees, and what the co-tenancy's rights are in the case of a default. The first step in the case of default, therefore, is going to be to look at the terms of your particular agreement and see what it says about your options uh, when an owner's in default. Often the co-tenancy agreement is gonna confirm that the co-tenancy has a charge over the property when an owner falls into default. So while we don't register a condominium lien because we're not dealing with a condominium, we do register, we do often register what we call a section 71 notice on title to the property uh, so that others have notice of the, of the owner's default and the co-tenancy's claim for those amounts. And then after the section seven, uh, Section 71 notice is registered, we would generally take similar enforcement steps to those we would use for a condominium lien. So it's slightly different than our condo lien process, but is similar uh, for most co-tenancies. The second question has to do with the amalgamation of several condominium corporations into one condominium corporation. And we've been asked, uh, what are the important things to consider when the amalgamation of several condos in the same development has been suggested? Uh, so the act does contemplate that condos that are located on adjacent parcels of land may amalgamate and become one 
condominium corporation. The process is complex um, and requires 90% consent of the owners of each condominium, which is a high threshold, 90% uh, from each condo. New governing documents must be prepared that are acceptable to all owners, and there will be substantial costs for the consulting, surveying, and legal work that is involved in the process. Typically, the amalgamating condos will have existed separately for some time and therefore will likely have their own identities. Uh, so before amalgamation, the owners in each condo are going to have to be satisfied that they're compatible and that they're going benefit, to benefit from this new amalgamation setup. Some items that will usually be a particular concern to the owners include first the reserve fund. So owners are going to want to be assured that their contributions to the reserve fund to date and their future contributions uh, will not be subsidizing any shortages in their neighbor's reserve fund. Second, common expenses. Owners are going to want to be assured that their new common expense contributions for the amalgamated condo are fair and equitable. And third, repair and maintenance obligations and unit boundaries. Owners are going to want to be satisfied that the repair and maintenance obligations are acceptable and that the boundaries between the units and common elements are satisfactory. And although the process can be complex, it can have uh, advantages uh, to uh, all the owners and the condominium corporations, which includes a reduction in the number of people involved in the governance of the property. There will likely be economies of scale for service contracts. There might be a reduction in professional fees over time. For example, you're only going to need one auditor. Um, and the general feeling of community may improve since the development is no longer divided into different condominium corporations. For these reasons and others, it can be worth exploring uh, the idea of amalgamation, despite the hurdles that corporations might face. And the third and last question that I'm going to be discussing with you today has to do with alterations to exclusive use common elements. We were asked to consider whether a condo board can make modifications to exclusive use common elements without the owner's consent. So as with any modifications to the common elements made by the corporation, the board's going to need to follow the procedures set out in Section 97 of the Condominium Act. In the case of a modification that affects someone's exclusive use rights, the, boards are, the board will also want to consider whether the proposed change significantly modifies the owner's ability to use the space or the nature of the space. Although the Condominium Act does not refer to any sort of veto power uh, for the owner of the exclusive use area, the board's going to want to be aware of the risks of a potential oppression claim from the owner if the area was significantly modified. So in the case where an owner's exclusive use area might be modified in an important or substantial way, it might be a good idea to discuss the scenario with the corporation's legal counsel to understand any risks, uh, any risk to the corporation uh, in moving forward with that action. So I'll send it back over to Nancy. Thank you so much for that, Jess. That is certainly a tricky topic, uh, modifications to an exclusive use area that an owner may not want to have completed. So as you said, probably best to speak with legal counsel if that issue does come up in your condominium. So again, thank you, Jess. Three really hot topics. On to our next speaker. Our next speaker today is Emily. Hi, Emily. I see Emily's already ready to go. Emily has some really intriguing and interesting questions about directors. I think she has three or four of them. So listen attentively as she'll be popping from topic to topic, all related to directors. Emily, over to you. Hi, everyone. So I'm going to be talking about the director's roles and duties and some issues that boards may face in carrying out their duties. So to start, I'll go over brief points on condominium corporation directors' roles um, as they're outlined in the Condominium Act. Many of you will be familiar with this, so I'll just mention some key responsibilities. 
Generally speaking, the director's role is to control, manage, and administer the common element, common elements and assets of the corporation. This will typically include enforcement of the Condominium Act and the governing documents, collection of common expenses, raising funds and establishing a budget for the corporation, as well as reserve fund planning, and repair and maintenance of the common elements, etc. The questions I'll be addressing today will touch on situations involving these duties. So our first question relates to offenses under the Condominium Act and whether anyone has ever been convicted um, under the Condominium Act. This is something that is, of course, required to be disclosed when an individual runs for election to the Board of Directors, and the short answer um, to this question is no. While we do know of some cases where directors have been charged under the Act, there haven't been any convictions to date. Our next question is about how to address situations where some members of the board may wish to discuss the actions of one particular director on the board without that director being present. Um, this is a situation where that director in question may be asked to leave the board meeting because they would be the subject of the discussion. This, however, likely only makes sense if a conflict of interest is present. A conflict of interest is defined under Section 40 of the Condominium Act as a material interest and the board members need to ensure also that there are reasons for which that particular director is asked to leave. Because generally speaking, all directors have a duty to participate in board meetings in order to fulfill their obligations to the corporation, as we previously discussed. So in this case, the best approach would be for all board members to, discuss, to first discuss the concerns regarding the particular director in order to determine whether there is in fact a conflict of interest present. This would either be a Section 40 material interest or um, otherwise an interest defined under general principles of conflict of interest, which may not necessarily be material but still makes sense for the particular director to recuse themselves. An example of such um, conflict of interest would be if the board were to discuss enforcement of the governing documents against that particular director's spouse. So if the, after this discussion there is a conflict of interest present, then it would make sense for that particular director to step away from the discussion. Next, we have a question with respect to what can be done about absentee or non-communicative board members. At the outset, this is an issue that can be addressed by having a qualification for directors that deems them to have resigned when they miss a specified number of consecutive meetings within a specified period of time without satisfactory reasons to the board. To further confirm this requirement, we like the idea of putting this into a bylaw. A bylaw is not necessarily required, however, having such a bylaw will assist in avoiding any debate about a director's required attendance at board meetings. Ultimately, the board can also consider removal of the director by a requisitioned meeting of owners. Now, relatedly, our next question is about the board's responsibility to respond to owner inquiries. Part of the board's responsibility is, of course, to address owners concerns when they arise. However, the nature of communications from the owner is an important factor to consider as well. The owner's concerns must be legitimate, but there are also factors such as language, tone, and volume of communications that sometimes come into play. We have encountered situations where owner correspondence can become offensive or harassing in nature, whether due to language, use, or volume of communications, and in this situation the board would often direct matters to legal counsel to assist in responding. 
Otherwise, if the communications from owners raise legitimate concerns regarding the condominium corporation, the board should be aiming to respond within a reasonable period of time. Lastly, we have a question about what steps a property manager might be able to take if they find that the board is not fulfilling their duties to maintain and repair the common elements. In this situation, we like an approach that assists in persuading the board to address the outstanding concerns. One clear way to do so would be to have the property manager put recommendations with respect to repairs and maintenance work in writing, either recorded in board meeting minutes or via a letter to the board from the property manager. This formality can assist to emphasize the significance of the issues and helps to persuade the board to take action on these items. As we know, in addition to the duty to repair and maintain the common elements, the board is also required to follow the recommendations of its experts under Section 37 of the Act. Otherwise, the risk of failing to do so could include potentially being found negligent in carrying out the director's duties, as well as a risk that the director may not have liability protection under Section 37 sub 3. So it's very important for boards to recognize when the property manager is providing recommendations such as for repair and maintenance. So that brings us right over to our next speaker from directors to owners. We're talking about enforcement now. So Mo, I'll turn it over to you to walk us through some interesting enforcement questions that you've received. Thanks so much, Nancy. Good afternoon, everyone. So as Nancy was saying, my topic touches on enforcement and I actually have two questions here. So the first question is, what are the rules around condo boards writing you up and are they they being the condo boards able to fine you. And my second question touches on whether or not condo boards can enforce on the common elements and on the exclusive use areas. So to address the first question, this is actually a two-part question. One, can a condo board report you to other authorities? And two, can condo condominiums impose fines on owners and residents? I'm going to try and answer this a little bit in the reverse. So I'm going to address the issue of fines first, and then the issue of writing up or reporting. Um, generally speaking, when there is an instance of non-compliance in a condo, there are a variety of solutions that are available to the condominium corporation, and then can, that can be adopted depending on the type of non-compliance and the situation at hand. So in certain cases, for example, it can be possible for condominium corporations to simply remove or reverse a violation. For example, if you have an offending vehicle, you can get uh, parking, for example, to tow it away. Uh, in other situations, you can remove or store items that are improperly left on the common elements and so on. Um, in other cases, the condominium corporation will have to get in touch with the owner, the non-compliant owner, inform them about the non-compliance and require that they take the appropriate steps to remedy the situation. Now, with respect to the specific issue of fines, the short answer is that in condominium, that condominiums in Ontario are not permitted to impose monetary fines on owners who breach the governing documents. So in other words, monetary fines are not among the enforcement mechanisms that are provided for under the Condominium Act. That being said, we need to be very careful here. So while fines, monetary fines in, in the proper sense are not permitted, condos do have the right to impose certain chargebacks. So this includes administrative fees um, and other sort of chargebacks depending on the condo's governing documents. So governing documents being the declaration, bylaws, and rules. So the principle that's important to keep in mind is that condos can charge back the actual costs 
that were incurred by the condominium corporation in remedying a particular situation. So for example, the act itself allows for the condo to charge back certain costs to owners. One example would be under section 92.4 of the act, which authorizes the condominium to charge repair costs back to a unit owner where the repairs were completed on the owner's behalf after he or she failed to, uh, failed to complete them within, re within a reasonable time. Um, so in our view, while fines are not permitted, condos can certainly charge back the actual costs that were incurred uh, to either repair the common elements or to enforce the rules or the other governing documents or so declaration or bylaws. Uh, in addition to that, condos can also, in our view, charge back administrative fees um, if it is a reasonable estimate of the actual costs incurred. Now, what does this what does this all mean? How do we illustrate it? So let me just give a, a very brief example to try and illustrate the situation. So a very common situation we encounter is with animals and pets in condominiums. So let's say you have an animal in a condo that causes damage to the common elements. For example, just for sake of example, a dog urinating on a carpet located in the condominium lobby. And then the condominium corporation has to pay a certain amount to get that carpet cleaned up or to otherwise remedy the situation. In this circumstance, it is absolutely appropriate for the condominium corporation to charge back the amount that was required to fix the situation. So the amount that was required to, let's say, clean up the lobby or clean up the carpet, um, whatever the situation may be. However, what the condo cannot do is impose a random monetary fine on top of that amount. So let's say on top of the on top of charging back the owner, they can't go ahead and impose, let's say, an extra $500 as a fine. Um, so that, that's one way to illustrate that difference between condos not being allowed to charge fines, but a lot being allowed to charge back owners for the actual cost and also being allowed to charge back administrative fees. Um, the last thing I'd like to mention with respect to this particular issue is that Section 17.4 of the Condominium Act, which is not yet in force, specifies, uh, this actually clarifies the, the, our position or this position much better, is that it specifies that the corporation shall not levy any penalty, fine, or any other amount against an owner, an occupier of a unit in the corporation, or, or any other prescribed person if it does not indemnify or compensate the corporation for an actual loss that the corporation has incurred in the performance of its objects and duties. So this is not uh, enforced yet, but in our view, it properly expresses the view of the majority of the court, courts so far. In other words, in other words, most courts would agree with this position. So, um, to summarize once again, while condominiums in Ontario cannot impose fines, they can certainly charge back uh, the actual costs incurred to remedy a situation, and they can also, in our view, properly charge back administrative fees. Um, now, the second part of that question is whether a condominium corporation can write an owner or a resident up. In other words, can they report a resident for non-compliant behavior? So the, the general principle to keep in mind here is that condominium corporations are not policing authorities. Okay, It's, it's not a condominium corporation's job to go around policing the owners. That being said, what a condominium corporation can do is they can certainly have an owner or an occupant tenant char charged by other policing authorities under other legislation. So put simply, the condominium corporation can absolutely report an owner or a non-compliant resident to the police, to uh, Ottawa bylaw, to other entities for non-compliant behavior. 
Um, the second question I had was, does the condominium corporation have any discretion to enforce, well, any discretion with respect to enforcement in A, the exclusive use areas and B, the common elements? So here, the first thing to keep in mind, um, th that's very important to keep in mind, is that the owner's right to use common elements is always subject to the provisions of A, the Condominium Act, and B, the corporation's governing documents. So that being the declaration, bylaws, and rules. In addition to that, Section 17.2 of the Act provides that the corporation has a duty to control, manage, and administer the common elements and assets of the corporation. Um, section 17.4 provides that the corporation, uh, the condominium corporation has to take all reasonable steps to ensure compliance with the Act and with its governing documents. Um, under Section 26 of the Act, the condominium corporation is considered to be the occupier of the common elements for the purpose uh, purposes of the Occupier's Liability Act. So all of this uh, combines to say that, yes, the condominium corporation can absolutely enforce on the common elements, including on the exclusive use common elements. So the condominium has a right and in our view, even a duty to enforce and ensure compliance with uh, the act and its governing documents while, uh, on the common elements and on the exclusive use common elements as well. Now, as I alluded to earlier in my presentation, what that enforcement looks like can vary depending on the situation. Um, in some cases, the condominium corporation can decide to outsource that to a third party entity. For example, a parking is a very common example of that, where while when the condominium corporation or property management will hand this over to um, a parking enforcement company that will be charged of ticketing, let's say, non-compliant vehicles. Um, in other situations, the corporation can just go ahead and adopt self-help remedies. Um, however, it, it can vary from case to case. And in some cases, particularly when you're dealing with difficult owners, potentially violent situations, that's not something we recommend. Oftentimes, when cases come to us, it's a situation where a condo has already tried to enforce it by you know, sending a few letters um, and it's not worked, so we need to send in a compliance letter. Um, and then in some cases, we will get compliance, other cases we will not. Um, and if the situation escalates, sometimes we may require intervention of the courts or of the condominium authority tribunal, depending on the nature of the case and depending on the facts that are um, at issue. But bottom line, the, the answer is under the Condominium Act, the corporation, the condominium corporation absolutely has a right and in our view, a duty to go ahead and enforce the um, uh, to, to go ahead and enforce on the common elements, including the exclusive use common elements. So that's it for me. Great, thank Back you, to you so, Nancy. so much, Mo. Thank you. And I guess just to summarize a little bit too, from the very end of your statement, don't sit on your rights. If you sit on your rights, you could be in trouble. You have to make sure that you're treating all owners fairly and enforcing fairly across the entire corporation, fairly and um, um, accurately. So next we have Cheryl. Cheryl's gonna come and jump on all of our meeting trickiness over the past year. All sorts of various meetings have been happening and have been leading to all sorts of fun and tricky questions. So Cheryl, I think you have about seven or eight meeting questions. So I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Nancy. I definitely have a few uh, issues or questions related to meeting that I'm gonna talk to you about today. So first up um, is the statement, our condo has not had an AGM since before the pandemic, as there is a concern that a virtual meeting is too difficult for people. 
So I, I can say, I don't think that your condo is alone with that concern. There was definitely a fear of virtual meetings, at least at the very beginning of the pandemic. However, it is now commonplace to have virtual meetings and we found virtual meetings to be very successful. The government did implement a transition period at the beginning of the pandemic where meetings were permitted to be delayed, but that uh, delay is no longer in effect and those meetings should have taken place uh, near the end of 2020. Um, due to the availability of virtual meetings, um, the government has made provision in the act that virtual meetings can continue to take place until December 31st of this year. Um, so if your condominium corporation isn't able to have an in-person meeting right now, there's a possibility that an in-person meeting could be held outside right now, depending on the size of your condominium corporation, um, provided that uh, the meeting complies with government restrictions and that all owners are able to or given the opportunity to attend the in-person meeting. But if that's not possible, then your corporation should be looking at the virtual, uh, virtual meeting option and should be having their AGM. So in the case that a condo hasn't had their AGM in over a year now, um, and the they're not responding to requests from owners to have that meeting, um, it is possible for owners to requisition a meeting under section 46 of the Condominium Act. And within the requisition, they could um, seek to put on the agenda, the items that you would general, generally see at the AGM. So the appointment of the auditor, the election of the board. So that's an option for owners that are um, have a condominium corporation that aren't calling that AGM. You can seek to have uh, requisition a meeting under section 46. Okay, so then the next question is, will Ontario ever get the regulations to a point that board meetings are not held in camera? So I'm going to say right out, uh, I don't believe so. Um, there's, of course, an option that owners can be invited to attend a board meeting or a portion of a board meeting by invitation of the board. However, open board meetings where all owners can come in and sit in on the board meetings are just not possible and I would not rec recommend them. And here's why. First, the board must comply with its obligations under the Condominium Act, including section 55 of the Act. Section 55 sub four of the Act requires that the condominium corporation keep certain matters confidential. This includes unit specific issues, matters related to litigation, uh, employment matters, et cetera. So the, if the corporation were to have open meetings, they wouldn't be fulfilling their obligation to keep those items uh, confidential. So it's just, in my view, not possible to have open board meetings and continue to fill, fulfill the board's obligations. Along a similar line, we received a question that asked, can an owner request to attend a board meeting? So I think owners can request to attend a board meeting if they have an issue that they want to raise to the board and they um, are seeking to present it to the board. Uh, the board may respond uh, to confirm that you're invited to attend a portion of the meeting. Um, they may also ask you to provide your comments in writing. It'll depend on the issue and how the board feels it's best to deal with that. 
Um, however, if you're just seeking to attend the board meeting to observe uh, the board meeting as a whole, my, com my earlier comments with respect to open board meetings stand. So questions at an AGM. Can a board prohibit owners from asking questions at an AGM? Section 45 sub three of the act confirms that at an annual general meeting, an owner may raise for discussion any matter related to the affairs and business of the corporation. This means matters relevant to the corporation as a whole and would not include unit specific issues. Those should be dealt with by sending a message to your property manager or board. Um, but the act confirms that owners can raise issues for general discussion at the AGM. So then the question um, confirmed, can the board require that questions be submitted in advance by email and have the property manager respond by email instead of addressing the questions or answers at the AGM for all owners to hear? So I can say that I've definitely seen corporations ask for questions to be submitted in advance to be reviewed verbally at the AGM. Um, this is helpful for the board because they can review the questions and make sure that they're prepared to address the questions at the AGM. It can also assist in streamlining the questions. So if multiple owner have, has the same question, um, the board can address all of those questions all at once at the AGM. So I do think re uh, sending in questions in advance and reviewing them in a more streamlined uh, method at the AGM is helpful. Having said that, as previously confirmed, owners are able to bring forward questions under section 45 sub three of the act. So if you miss the deadline to submit your question um, in advance of the meeting, or if a question that you submitted in advance is not raised at the AGM in any uh, manner, uh, you can then raise that question for general discussion at the AGM. Okay, and then the next question is, um, what would be deemed an acceptable frequency for board meetings outside of an AGM and budget planning meetings with property management? Um, so in this example, um, the board doesn't necessarily hold regular meetings. They um, might meet in passing or by email. Um, so they it appears that they're not having consistent meetings. Okay, so, the timing of board meetings are generally set out in the corporation's bylaw and the comprehensive bylaw for the corporation. So the first step would be to check your bylaws and see if the bylaws speak to the frequency of board meetings and how they should be conducted. If the bylaws don't speak to this matter, then it will be up to the board to determine how frequently they need to meet in order to fulfill their obligations. Um, with that said, I also note that currently there's a temporary provision allowing board, meeting, uh, board meetings to be conducted uh, virtually, even without all consent of the board, so virtual meetings are possible. I also note that there are circumstances where the boards cannot meet in person or needs to make a quick decision, and can, uh, that can be done by email as long as it's ratified at the next meeting. If the board meetings aren't taking place at all in accordance with the bylaws or there are no minutes being taken at the board meetings, the board, me the board can be reminded of their obligations in accordance with the bylaws. All right, so my last question relates to meeting minutes or other records of the corporation that may be missing. 
If the corporation is meeting missing records, who needs to be informed? So there are requirements for the corporation's records to be kept for a certain amount of time as prescribed by the Condominium Act and its regulations. However, there's not an obligation to notify anyone if there are records missing. Um, for missing records, in my view, the corporation needs to make best efforts to try and obtain or recover um, records that might be missing if possible from a previous board, uh, previous board or a property manager. However, there can be circumstances that arise where the records are just not available in the event that the corporations had a fire or a flood that's destroyed some of the records. If the records, uh, the missing records are requested by an owner, the reason that they're not being provided or why they are missing would be disclosed in any board response to a request for records. Um, so that's the time that I, I could see them being disclosed to owners is if they go to find them and there's a, um, a reason that needs to be set out in a response to a request for records. That's all for me, Nance. Okay, thanks, Cheryl. I actually popped on a couple seconds ago because I, I forgot you had so many questions, so hopefully I didn't distract you too much. Uh, Cheryl did a little pop-on earlier today, so I was just help making her feel a little bit better about my pop-on. So there you go. So thank you so much, Cheryl. That brings us right over to Victoria. Uh, Victoria, I think you're going to deal with probably one of the trickiest issues that we often are faced with, insurance. So have fun with insurance, and it's over to you. Thank you, Nancy. Good afternoon, everyone. So I'm dealing with two questions today, one of which relates to insurance, the other not so much, but I'm going to do my best to answer it. Um, okay, so the very first question we're dealing with today is can a condominium corporation ask owners and tenants to obtain personal liability insurance if the condominiums insurer requires this? This is, as Nancy said, this is a complex issue because a condominium's legal right to insist that owners and tenants uh, obtain personal liability insurance is unclear. Most insurers don't bother requiring this. However, we do see this from time to time. So as a starting point, a condominium's insurer uh, does, in most cases, have the right to recover insurable damage from tenants. Uh, that is, unless the declaration says otherwise, but it generally cannot recover insurable damage from owners. Uh, this is because owners are entitled to the condomini condominium's insurance uh, pursu pursuant to section 99 of the Condominium Act. Um, and so it may make sense for the condominium's insurer to require that tenants obtain personal liability insurance because if a tenant causes insurable damage to the standard unit and or common elements, the condominium's insurer, who is obligated to insure this damage, may want to try to recover these costs via a subrogated claim against, uh, against the tenant, particularly if the tenant has insurance. Now, this requirement for personal liability insurance does not make as much sense in the case of owners. If an owner causes damage to the standard unit and or common elements, the condominiums insured generally has no right to recover from the owner. So the owner having this liability insurance won't help the corporations insure. Uh, the most an owner can be held responsible for uh, is the amount of the insurance deductible, which is something that the condominium corporation would directly deal with. 
Further, even if owners obtained this personal liability insurance, the condominium's insurance takes priority over the owner's insurance as per Section 101 of the Condominium Act. In other words, the condominium's insurer would be required to respond over the owner's insurer. And so again, it doesn't make much sense for the corporation's insurer to insist that owners obtain liability insurance. So the bottom line is that condominiums insurers uh, can often go after tenants, but generally can't go after owners. So by way of an example, if a tenant leaves a sink to overflow, which causes insurable damage to the standard units and common elements that costs, say, $200,000, the condominiums insurer is responsible for insuring these costs, but it may try to recover those costs from the tenant, particularly if the tenant has insurance. On the other hand, if an owner leaves a sink to overflow, which causes the same damage, again, the, the condominiums insurer is responsible for insuring these costs, but it generally has no ability to recover these costs from the owner. The most, again, that the owner would be responsible for is the insurance deductible. So as I said, we do see from time to time insurers insisting that tenants and owners obtain personal liability insurance. Uh, this might be something um, we see more often in the future, uh, given the difficulty with obtaining uh, condominium insurance over the past few years. Uh, in our view, it's unclear in law whether condominiums have the right to insist that owners and tenants obtain this insurance. Um, and so even if the condominium amended its declaration or passed a bylaw uh, requiring that owners and tenants obtain personal liability insurance, the enforceability of these, um, these requirements is unclear. There isn't, to our knowledge, any case law on this point. Um, another difficulty with a condominium requiring that each owner and tenant have personal liability insurance, either by amending its declaration or uh, passing a bylaw, um, is that the condominium would have a duty to enforce these provisions, which would, of course, involve a lot of grunt work on the part of condominium corporations having to satisfy themselves that each and every owner and tenant has obtained this insurance. Um, in some cases, in order to satisfy the insurers, we've been able to make best efforts to obtain confirmation from uh, tenants and owners that they are carrying um, this insurance. So, in summary, um, it's unclear whether a condominium corporation has a legal right to ask owners and tenants to obtain personal liability insurance. Um, as I said, we have seen it before, and we certainly expect to see this request from insurers more frequently, just given the current difficulty uh, for obtaining insurance for condominiums. Um, okay, so my next question um, is what is the meaning of an as-built policy or clause regarding replacement of windows, doors, et cetera, of condominium units? So I'm not exactly sure that I understand this question, and I don't think this question has anything to do with insurance, as I said earlier. But in case this answers your question, I wanted to provide a few comments um, on condominium policies dealing with the replacement of as-built, uh, standard, or original uh, common element windows and doors and units. Um, so such a policy would apply in a situation where the condominium corporation is responsible for replacing windows and doors, um, but an owner would like to upgrade um, their windows and doors that are in their unit for 
whatever reason. Uh, in this situation, um, we sometimes see policies confirming that an owner is permitted to upgrade their windows and doors as long as the owner uh, covers the cost of the upgrade and that the condominium will reimburse that owner for part of the cost to replace the original windows and doors equal to the amount that the condominium would otherwise spend to replace the, window, the standard windows and doors um, with more standard wind windows and doors. Um, the policy may also confirm that provided the condominium is satisfied with the upgraded windows and doors uh, that the owner has installed, the condominium agrees to maintain and repair those upgraded windows and doors going forward. So for example, let's say an owner in a condominium townhouse wants to upgrade their windows and asks the board for permission to do so. Assuming this upgrade is permitted under Section 98 of the Condominium Act, the board may, as per this policy, permit the owner to go ahead. And when the condominium replaces at some point in time, all of the remaining windows and doors, it will reimburse to the owner who, who owns the unit at that time of reimbursement, the amount that would otherwise be spent by the corporation to carry out that replacement. So if an owner spends $10,000 to upgrades it to upgrade its windows and doors, and the condominium spends $7,000 to replace the original windows and doors, as per the policy, the condominium would only reimburse the owner $7,000. This amount would be paid to the owner who owns the unit at the time of the reimbursement, which is uh, the time that the corporation would otherwise incur the cost. Uh, so I hope that answers your question. Um, Nancy, I'm now going to turn it back over to you. Fantastic, Victoria. Thank you. And just a note on these policies, those types of policies were in effect uh, probably more years ago than not, not as common uh, more recently because they're exceptionally tricky and you do require very careful legal advice on the validity of any policy in relation to your governing documents. So don't just go ahead and jump into a policy like that without careful review by your council. So we now have our last speaker, David. We have about seven minutes left and I think you've got about four or five questions. So I'm gonna turn it over to you to tell us all about bylaws and rules. Great, and I'm gonna try my best to finish so we can get out of here by two. Okay, thanks, Nance. Um, so my topic is on bylaws and rules. It's a bit broad, but I will do my best to constrain my comments to the questions we received. Now, as we all know, Governing documents of a common corporation are generally the declaration, the bylaws, and the rules. And I like to think of the declaration as something like the constitution of a condo corp, while the bylaws are like the statutes and the rules are um, basically more clarifying documents to deal with more day-to-day -day issues and items. Provisions of a bylaw and rules need to be reasonable, but there is no such reasonable requirement within a declaration. The most prominent example of an unreasonable provision uh, is a blanket prohibition on pets. Such, prohibi uh, such provisions are enforceable if they are in the declaration. Now, that doesn't mean that they can be enforced in all instances. For example, even if such a prohibition is in a declaration, human rights considerations can still apply. So if there is a resident in a no pets building that needs service animals, for example, they would likely be exempt from such a prohibition because a condo corporation will have a duty to accommodate. Now, as for bylaws, some of the most common bylaws we see are insurance deductible bylaws and standard unit bylaws. 
The typical purpose of an insurance deductible bylaw is to clarify the responsibility of the deductible from the corporation's insurance in certain situations, such as where the owner or occupant of an owner's unit or a guest or agent of an owner through an act or omission caused insured damage to any part of the property and or where insured damage is caused by the owner's unit by an accident, i.e. where no one's at fault. Now, some insurance deductible bylaws say that the owners will only be responsible for accidental, to, accidental damage to their units if the source of the damage is also within that unit. A standard unit bylaw, meanwhile, defines what a standard unit is. The corporation's insurance covers damage for units up to that standard. For condo corporations declared after May 5, 2001, the declarant must have provided a standard unit description. For condos before that day, however, a bylaw must be passed. The standard unit is basically a description of what features is considered standard for each unit model within a condo corporation. For example, the standard unit may say that carpeting in the bedroom. So an insured repair would only get to that level. Owners who might have hardwood in their bedroom would then have to pay uh, either themselves or through their insurance to get to that extra level. We know that condominiums are facing a continuing crisis with respect to insurance costs. So one of the ways uh, to possibly reduce such costs that we have seen is to amend the standard unit to decrease the amount of features covered. And one, I would say, more extreme example is where a condominium amended their standard unit description to basically just the concrete walls, i.e. no finishes at all. If your condo corporation does not have a standard unit bylaw, and your condo corporation was declared before May 5th, 2001, then if there was unit damage covered by the condominium's insurance, the insurance would have to pay after the deductible all of the repairs inside the unit, including the upgrades. Oftentimes, the standard unit bylaw and the insurance deductible bylaw work hand in hand. That doesn't mean, however, that by default, you'll have to amend the other one, uh, one or the other, if you're amending one. Of course, you'll want to make sure all your governing documents are consistent. So if you're considering amending uh, either of those types of bylaws, make sure to have a lawyer look at everything so that uh, the wording remains consistent. Another type of bylaw that I want to mention is a Section 98 bylaw. As we know, Section 98 deals with alterations to the common elements made by the owners. Typically, these require a Section 98 agreement to be reviewed and registered on title by a lawyer. However, there might be some communities where individual agreements might not be very practical, such as uh, if there's uh, many units with uh, similar alterations, et cetera, et cetera. So one possible solution is a section 98 bylaw registered on title to all units. And for the units where there are the alterations, they'll just provide an assigned acknowledgement form to the corporation. Now, uh, I, I'm mindful of the time, so I'm going to briefly touch upon rules. So a very common rule that we see is a non-smoking rule. From an enforcement perspective, no smoking rules are very helpful because it sets a clear standard of unacceptable behavior. Now, uh, you can still possibly take enforcement action for a smoking resident in a condo without a non-smoking rule, since owners or residents still have a duty to not cause nuisance to others. But nuisance is a much a uh, more difficult standard to achieve when compared to a much more clear standard that a non-smoking rule provides. So uh, enforcement absent a rule is generally much more challenging. 
And uh, I'm mindful of the time, so that's all I have for today. Uh, thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, David. I know that we had several more questions that we were hoping to get to, but unfortunately we weren't able to hit them today. So again, we have another Q&A with DJ coming up in the fall. We're still trying to do these several times a year. And in the meantime, stay tuned for an email coming out in the coming days. It's back to school time, which means it's back to condo crunch time, our lunch hour sessions. So watch for your email for your ability to help us guide our next condo crunch, what our topic is going to be, and also set the date. Thank you, everybody. Stay safe, stay cool, and have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.